Hey, music lovers, the Cannamom Show podcast in collaboration with Lambkin Guitars is giving away a custom-built, one-of-a-kind electric guitar built by Josh Lampkin. The solid one-piece hemp wood body includes a built-in glass bowl piece. Yeah, you heard me right. You can take a hit and then play a lick. Now's your chance to help the Cannamom Show crush cannabis stigma with your entry. Register for the Hemp Guitar Giveaway online at lampkinguitars.com. That's L-A-M-K-I-N guitars.com. The drawing will be part of a 420 celebration at the Goods Dispensary in Somerville, Massachusetts, where the guitar is on display for the month of April. But don't worry, you don't have to live in Mass or be present to win. Visit LampkinGuitars.com to scope out the Hemp Guitar giveaway details and entry form. You'll even find a video of what could be your guitar in action. L-A-M-K-I-N-Guitars.com Everything is personal right here. Everything is personal right here Everything is personal right here Let me end on the N.A. Heat guaranteed when you press in the play Ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, welcome to another episode of Everything is Personal. And today I have a friend and a colleague and a mentor and uh, somebody that I really looked up to as a professional player as well, and plus all the other uh, like million things that he does. So I want to welcome former Philadelphia Flyer, Mr. Riley Cote, to the show. Thank you for being here. Wow, nice to see you, man. You too, man. So creative entrepreneur, we were just talking. What what does that entail? Oh, man. Uh, (laughs) I I realized, uh, I guess since I retired from playing in 2010, that I was a lot more creative than I thought, not just in the sense of, you know, art and and whatever else. But I think what I've learned in business is that your, your, your network is your net worth. And I'm realizing how to creatively bring pieces together for certain projects, um, certain pieces that complement each other. Um, so in that aspect, but also, you know, there is a creative element to me as far as uh, some, you know, uh, production stuff that I'm doing through podcasting, uh, as well as uh, helping with uh, the marketing and branding of certain companies that I'm involved in. So a little bit of everything, but it's just kind of looking around and, 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 and seeing what's there and trying to pull it in and, and seeing if it makes sense, uh, um, in, in different forms. So, um, a little bit of a loose answer there, but, uh, there is the, the actual creative element where I actually like to, to work on the computer and, and piece things together. Um, but also like just in the network and just trying to find pieces that fit, um, in my different projects, if that makes any sense. It makes total sense to me because, uh, so I, I've ADD, I have like my, my octopus tattoo here because I'm always have eight tentacles in a million different places, but that's, that's my superpower. I have yeah. to do multiple things, but when something totally, totally stimulates me and I get all this squirt of dopamine, I hyper-focus on that until I no longer do. So I completely relate to like having this creative mission and then being able to dabble in different things because they all kind of interconnect, right? That's it. Yeah. And that's what I'm 
really trying to focus on you. It might seem like uh, there's no method to my madness, but I've always had this vision of like gluing these pieces together and say, maybe not fully, but um, there's a lot of overlap and a lot of like you're like you're saying. So, you know, sometimes the focus is on project A and sometimes it's fully on project B. And then and sometimes it's like, oh, how do we, you know, how do, how do we join project A and B right. and, and where we can find other pieces to help uh, you know, everybody win type of deal. So, um, yeah, there's, I mean, you realize there's so much opportunity and, you know, the space I'm playing, I'm not all over the place in the sense of, um, you know, complete different dimensions of my projects. They're all in the realm of wellness, mental wellness, spiritual wellness. And um, yeah, I'm just trying to, um, find ways that the one complements the other. Yeah, that makes total sense. Let, let me roll back uh, and sort of ask some questions about it, just so we can get to know you better as a person. So uh, where did you grow up? Grew up in Winnipeg, Manitoba, right in the middle of Canada, right above the the North America or um, North Dakota border, about an hour north there. And yeah, born and raised, moved away from home when I was 16 to play junior hockey and and then eventually move my move myself into the U.S. So, in terms of hockey, uh, I read somewhere, and correct me if I'm wrong, but you were a walk on to the Leafs. Is that is that true? Okay. Yeah. So I uh, I went to Toronto Maple Leafs training camp. Mm-hmm. Uh, it ended up being my first year pro. Uh, well, as a walk on, I mean, as an invite, um, and I went there in hopes to not go back to junior hockey. So I had one more year I could have played eligible for junior in the Western league, but my hopes was to go to Toronto Maple Leafs training camp and, and sign some sort of contract, whether it was actually with the, the Toronto Maple Leafs or their minor league team, which was the St. John's Maple Leafs at the time, which that's landed up what happening signs with the St. John's Maple Leafs and land up uh, spending most of that year in uh, the central hockey league. And then from there, did you then go to the Phantoms or, or did you go to the Flyers? Like, how does that work? Yeah. So that was my first year pro. So we landed up being in the Central Hockey League most of that year. We landed up winning a, a championship down there. The yep. following year, I went to Columbus Blue Jackets training camp as an, you know, as an invite um, and then landed up signing an, an, another American League deal with uh, Syracuse Crunch, which was the Columbus Blue Jackets minor league team. And then... Um, the the following year was the 0405 NHL lockout. So the NHL wasn't playing and I was like scrambling for a job because it's, obviously like everyone moved down a league, right? There's no NHL established NHL players didn't play, but the, you know, the fringe guys landed up playing flooding the American hockey league. So I was like, shit, I'm like, this is gonna be impossible to find a job, you know? And um, so I landed up signing back with the, the team that I'd played for in the central hockey league, the Memphis river Kings. And then I was there four or five days, get a phone call from uh, Ron Hextall at the time was the assistant general manager of the Flyers. Uh, he was the general manager of the, the Phantoms, which is the Flyers minor league team. So listen, we want to sign into a 25 game professional tryout, you know, p- come in for the weekend, uh, play a couple of games and we'll evaluate and see what happens. And we might send you back or whatever. So the long and short of it is, is I went up there for the weekend and uh, I squeezed in one game and there was an injury. So I stuck around another weekend. And then the long and short of it is I landed up signing three more professional tryout agreements with the Phantoms. Um, had, had an amazing year personally as a team. We won the Calder cup in the American league, which was the best, the best league in the world at that time. Cause the NHL wasn't going on. And, uh, and then landed up signing an NHL deal um, after that. So I landed up working out. Uh, 
So who were some of your hockey heroes growing up? Uh, I had a couple. And I actually was on the phone with one of them today, ironically. And you know, we'll talk about this because it was an it was an amazing, uh, profound conversation. But one was Scott O'Neill. No one really knows who he is. He was number, number 11 for the Winnipeg Jets. I won a jersey at one of the Winnipeg Jets games. And he became my favorite player because of I won a jersey. My, my actual favorite player growing up was Mark Messier. Wore number 11. So I wore number 11 my whole my whole youth hockey career. And that's who I had a phone call with today. Um, no and it was around psilocybin mushrooms, believe it or not. That's so, amazing. Yeah. It's so cool. Yeah. I'm a, I'm a huge messy. I mean, I'm a Flyer fan, diehard. But yep. I, I did love the Oilers back in the day, obviously, because, you know, they yeah. were just the greatest Dynasty. team ever. Right. Right. So, <laughs> yeah. So watching those guys and Paul Coffey, Messier, and obviously Gretzky and all that stuff. That, that's really, that's really interesting. Uh, because it's interesting because you're an enforcer, you're an enforcer. And, and I, I want to get into that a little bit because I, I rewatched the ice guardians recently okay. because I, and I thought you, you were so profound in, in that documentary for, for those people that don't know and correct me for all it's, it's a documentary about basically the enforcer in hockey and it, and it yep. humanizes it in such an amazing way because, you know, you look at, you look at players who are, there for a certain role and you think that they're they're there like you have this this big guy comes out and is like i can't really play hockey so i'm gonna go and i'm gonna fight somebody and uh and it's like this this ancient way to be able to get people up just for that same reason but there is there's such a, a human element to that and it's, and it's such a respected role in a locker room and i, I thought it was a, a great job but my question is as an enforcer, uh, and I, I'll, I'll leave this question because I had another hockey player on recently, and I'll tell you who that, that is in a, in a minute. But there's an interesting side of the game. Is there somebody that you modeled your game after? Like uh, uh, I, I, you mentioned Mark Messi, and he wasn't an enforcer, but he was definitely a physical player. Is there anybody that you sort of modeled your game after that you want to see, okay, this is the type of player that I would like to be? Yeah, it, it was Mark Messier. So growing up, I wasn't a fighter, right? I mean, just like any other Canadian hockey player, you, you you love playing hockey for the obvious reasons that it's a creative sport and you have some freedom. And um, and and believe it or not, I was actually you know the, one of the better the better hockey players from my age group in, in my city um, at, at the time. Um, so um, I always envisioned scoring goals, and I was. I knew I was more of a power forward. I knew I wasn't like a, a shifty, you know, small skill guy. Not that I'm a huge guy by any means, but I was, you know, I, I was in the, you know, the, the larger bracket of, of hockey players, I guess you could say at the time. Um, so I would consider myself, a, you know, a power forward, you know, I still was, you know, a physical guy, like, you know, getting on the four check and, and I scored my goals by being greasy, not, you know, not highly skilled, had a decent shot. Um, but it wasn't until I turned pro at the age of 20, basically when I went to Toronto Maple Leafs training camp was when I decided like, I'm going into this training camp with the mindset of the enforcer. I said, you know, I'm fighting everyone and their brother and biggest guy, the guy with the most penalty minutes, didn't matter what, what it took. I knew I was a competitive guy. I knew I had, you know, that, that, that in me. And I was just looking at the guys getting called up a lot of guys with lots of penalty minutes and, and lots of goals. And I wasn't drafted, didn't have my foot in the door in any organization. So I just figured um, being a competitive guy, 
you know, was a much bigger guy at the time, uh, you know, his muscle wise and, and body weight wise, I just figured, okay, well, it's just my only shot. So let's, let's give it a whirl. And, uh, one of the things that you talked about, I think you and a couple other people in the, in the ice guardians, I'm going to see if I can, if I got this right. And I found it fascinating. It sort of leads you, me to a conversation about, uh, you know, what you're, what you're doing now too. this, this ability to be able to turn it on when you have to, when this adrenaline, this dopamine, all this, and then you have to go home. And how do you, how do you transition from this, like this on phase to the off phase? And how does it, how it must leak into your personal life and affect your personal life if you're doing that, you know, as a, as a professional player who knows, you know, you're an enforcer, you're going to be a fighter. You have to, you have to do that. How do you then bring it back home and sort of have that balance? Yeah, you know what? Um, it's an interesting question because my approach then is well, not that I'm fighting anymore, but it, it was certainly different uh, than the way I would do it. You know, um, in this day and age, if I if I had to, and it was really honestly uh, a lot of stimulants uh, <laughs> between coffee, Sudafed, and any sort of you know uh, methamphetamine I could probably get my hands on to get myself jacked up. You know, get myself in that into that headspace because again, like I was 215 pounds, six, six, one, pretty average when you're fighting guys, six foot five, six foot six, 250, 260, 270 pounds. So, um, fighting is in a natural state of mind. And, um, I was kind of always right in the middle of that flight or flight response. Right. I mean, it was this chronic state of anxiety. So jacking yourself up, 82 games, right? I mean, it was that's so many games that we'd play a season plus playoffs if, if I stayed healthy throughout that season. But, and even though I didn't fight within a game, I still had mentally prepared to. So I jacked myself up and I was playing the role, right? So I'm sitting there barking at everyone and hitting everybody, you know, like I could, you know, get my hands on and, and whatever else, just acting like a complete looney tune. Um, and, and then, then on the back end of it was like, okay, well, so the game is over and I got all this built up aggression still. I mean, adrenaline, you know, the caffeine, the stimulants are still flowing. And I had a relationship with cannabis and I didn't really respect it, didn't really understand it, but I still used it. And it, I knew that it calmed me down. I, I could have obviously could have, um, can make sense of that, but it was, again, it was misunderstood, misused, but it was usually mixed with alcohol too. So after the game, it was just like, as fast as we can get out of the rink, let's go, let's go drink and smoke and do whatever to help just like calm the nervous system and get my mind off the next fight. Really. I mean, it was just kind of like a way to, to deal with it. So not very sustainable. Probably one of the biggest reasons why I was forced to retire from playing at a young age was, well, it was my own choice, but it was just the way I was living I didn't really have any other way at the time. I didn't know any other way. There was no, there's no peace. You know, I didn't find, haven't, didn't find a way to find peace in it all. Cause again, I was in that chronic state of anxiety. So um, yeah, stimulants and drugs and, and alcohol and, and, uh, and the whole bit. Right. So. Yeah. It's, it's an interesting uh, thing because uh, so I had a, uh, I had Darren McCarty on. Uh, my oh, podcast. Darren. Yeah. What a beauty. So he, he actually, and he didn't know that you were coming on. He doesn't, he doesn't know anything about, you know, or relationship or anything like that. And he said he was giving you so much credit because he said you were one of the mentors that was able to get him because he was going down, you know, and he talked about it, you know, alcohol and, and drugs and all that stuff to sure. be able to, 
and, and for that same reason as you just described, because you're jacked, you're on, and uh, you have to fight. And even if you don't fight, you have to go back home and you have to calm your nervous system down. It's, it's an amazing thing what that does to your overall nervous system, the cortisol release, all that stuff. There's yep. a, you know, there's a lot of scarring that's going on there. And I'm just using that facetiously, but really it, it is internal scarring. So he gave a lot of credit to you as one of the people that, uh, that sort of mentored him to do that and to, to sort of transition that into question is how did you, now that you were moving towards retirement how, and you talked about cannabis briefly, how did you kind of start transitioning your way into helping yourself and then also, you know, working on helping other people? It's interesting. It was my last uh, season in 2010 and uh, we had fired John Stevens as a head coach. Well, we, <laughs> our general manager did. Um, and brought in Peter Laviolette, which I, you know, fully respect. But once he came in, my role diminished. Uh, it wasn't playing a whole lot. He says, well, listen, we won a Stanley Cup in Carolina without having a tough guy. And, you know, whether I disagreed with him or not didn't really matter. It was, uh, you know, I wasn't playing. But I had also had a lot of time to, say, reflect on, you know, my current situation and my life and where I was at. And I was realizing, that, you know, Things obviously weren't great. You know, I was in the NHL living my childhood dream, but I was also wasn't overly fulfilled spiritually, right? It was like, okay, well, where, where's, the, where's the happiness that's supposed to be, you know, along with this, uh, this, this ride? And I, I didn't necessarily find it. And um, I only played 17 games that last year. And I had another full year on my contract, one-way contract with the Flyers. But going into the, uh, the offseason, I wrapped up the season with a couple surgeries uh, one on my nose, which probably could use another one, and then one on my finger. But um, I told myself for those two surgeries, I was I, I wasn't going to touch the pharmaceutical drugs they were going to give me because part of what I didn't, didn't mention was just like the mixing of you know opioids and sleeping pills and all the stuff on the road. It was just like a it's a dirty mess, and I, I was just like at the point I just wasn't happy spiritually, mentally, physically, just banged up. I told myself these surgeries, I'm just going to use cannabis. And this is like really before I fully understood like the, the absolute medicinal properties of cannabis. It was just going off intuition and intuition based on my experience of like how I felt using cannabis. Um, so I said, I'm going to use cannabis um, on the back end of these surgeries and throw away the pills. And that's what I did. And that, that was kind of like the aha moment of like, okay, all right. So I can kind of understand the medical value uh, of cannabis. And then I just dove, you know, head first into this. I, I read a book called Hemp for Health, started to understand not just the medicinal applications of cannabis and the minor cannabinoids and all that, but the industrial applications of, of cannabis as, you know, as an industrial resource, right? Textiles, fuel, food, all that good stuff, which I was, uh, you know, just blown away by because I didn't really ever understand the cannabis plant as that. Um, so then it was kind of like, all right, well, I, I'm, I'm understanding of this. Uh, it's, it's helping me heal. It was a, it was a tool that I ended up continuing continuing to use. But then I started to understand the different delivery systems and different dosing and and different cannabinoids and all that good stuff. So I was just navigating the cannabis space with a little more mindfulness. And uh, it was pretty quickly after I retired that I realized that. Um, that this was part of my mission. This was part of what I needed to do, my purpose. 
to not just you know, obviously heal myself, but then to kind of spread the good word and help people within my network, within the Flyers alumni, and just anybody that I could, you know, get to, to share my experiences with cannabis and how it helps, helps save my life. Right. I mean, it was, it was, it was kind of one of those choices I had to make. It was either keep going down this dark path or, or, or figure this thing out. And um, yeah, my relationship with cannabis changed in that moment. I landed up uh, after those two surgeries going back home and I was like preparing to go back to training camp for, for the next year. So not really thinking I was retiring at the time, not, not even crossed my mind, but then I was back home for about two weeks back in Winnipeg in the off season. And they get a phone call from Paul Holmgren, who was the general manager of the flyers at the time saying, listen, uh, there's a job opening within the flyers, uh, minor league system within the phantoms, you know, Shell Samuelson, he was assistant coach uh, down there. Uh, and I had, I had Sammy when I played for the Phantoms and he said his house got struck by lightning <laughs> and not, not that it's funny, but it was the, the coincidence of it all. And there's this job and I know where your head's at after our year end meetings, you know, we weren't in a great spot and it's a tough year for you. And, and the reality was I, I knew I was probably going to be sent down to the, the Phantoms, even if I was on a one-way contract going into the next year. So I was like, geez, I'm like, man, this is like my whole life. And this is everything I've done in my whole life is play hockey. And, and, and here's this offer on the table to, to exit stage left and, and, and opportunity to bow out of the game, say with honor, um, but on my own time with my, you know, on my own decision. And I hung up the phone with Homer, reflected on it that night, called up in the morning. I said, let's do it. I'm done. You know, I'm, I'm out. And, uh, and that's, you know, it was, it was a decision that uh, was t- was it was tough, but not that tough because you know when your heart's not in something, um, it doesn't matter how much money it pays you, no matter how much glory that was associated with the job you're doing, it wasn't fulfilling for my spirit. And uh, I knew that th- that opportunity was like the calling um, for me, not to to get into coaching that I wanted to do that as a career for the rest of my life, but it was an exit strategy, right? It was an exit strategy that had some sort of say cushion. Um, but I stayed in the game and I was able to take you know, take control of my, my health that way. And it was really kind of jumping on the other side of the fence, exit the party, stop drinking for a year, started just to just focus on brain regeneration, recovery, proper sleep, you know, calming the nervous system on a regular basis, all that good stuff. And I guess the rest is history. So in doing so, I, I, Firstly, you got to still be around hockey yeah. uh, and then, uh, you know, recover. But how did you start, like, taking what you learned about cannabis and your mission? I think, if I remember correctly, you also said something in, in that Ice Guardians documentary about um, trying to look for peace and search mm-hmm. for peace, right? Uh, which, which is, it's, it's such an important statement because that's sort of what we look for, all of us, and how do we find that how now that you found or you had a path with cannabis how did you start uh sort of mentoring other people uh, like darren gave you that credit how did you start getting other people involved athletes uh that were there were you know former flyers or or other former players and kind of expanding that knowledge to other people i guess it, it probably took a couple of years for me to get into the understanding that i was on to something not that i was the first person to ever to think this way, but you know, in the sports world, specifically the hockey world, I was recognizing that I was some sort of thought leader in the sense that I understood cannabis a little bit differently than most people. 
and you say the finding the peace, you know, it wasn't just the cannabis to help me find the peace. It was obviously a lot of inner work that I had to do and realizing that the peace wasn't outside of myself, that the peace was already within me. I just needed to tap into it. So I, you know, begin, you know, tapping into the yoga philosophy and meditation and all that good stuff. So it was integration, obviously, as it, as it always is, it's more than just one. Did you, did you have a mentor for that? Like what I love what you're saying, because you hit the nail on the head. It's, it's within us. Just let's get out of, our, out of our own way. Right. But was it reading? Was it a, a video? Like what was what was the like sort of the impetus to get you to that point where you started to understand that? I didn't have a mentor at this time. It was um, it was again probably the ego um, trying to substitute physical exercise. Again, I was heavy lifting. You know, when I was fighting and playing, it was two hundred fifteen pounds, and all concerned about how big I was and how strong I was. But it also really stressed out and taxed my joints, right? There was a lot of stiffness and just, you know, stored trauma that I was trying to eliminate. So one of the first things I did, um, you know, I'm not even sure how mindful it was. It was just transitioning from lifting to, to yoga, just physical practice of yoga without understanding the philosophy of yoga. But as I started practicing, I started to understand more and more about what I was actually doing. It wasn't just physical practice. There was this breath component, there was this mindful movement of meditation, start to understand just meditation a little bit more just through the practice. And I was just like obsessed with the physical practice of yoga, but then slowly but surely just started to understand the rest of it. And, um, and that's kind of really started how I started getting into the, the real, the mindful practice of yoga, not so much just the physical practice and just understanding it as it, as it's uh, entirety. So I have, a, I have a mentor now, but I only found, discovered him you know, a couple of years ago. And that's really kind of why I got into teaching yoga and actually studying yoga and, and, and you know, taking the, the yoga teacher training, all that good stuff. But it was kind of just like how I just like, just, just me, just like knowing me and my, and my background, my personality. It was just like one of those hard headed guys that just like always wanted to learn my on my own and like, you know, learn the hard way. It was just like the way I figured out how to be a hockey fighter. It wasn't like someone told me or mentored me. It was like, I was just had to recognize what I needed to do. And then I said, well, I could do that. So I'll just learn how to be a tough guy. You know what I mean? I learned how to play the role, learn how to fight. And, you know, took all these different types of martial arts and, you know, Greco Roman wrestling, all this stuff. It was kind of the same way I attacked post hockey career was let's figure this thing out. You know, is the way I figured out you know, medicinal cannabis based on intuition, based on my experience. But then all these other things were kind of trial and error. Same thing with mushrooms. You know, all of a sudden it was like, okay, well, let's just sit in peace with these things instead of going to King's Leon concert and, you know, and, <laughs> and taking in all these distract, all this distraction. So, um, but you know, I, I could have probably simplified the process had I had, uh, you know, a mentor or someone to kind of, you know, bring in the bumpers to kind of like reel me in. But, um, you know, that's just, you know, my, my story was just uh, a, a little bit more aggressive. It took, probably took a little longer for me to reel it in. And that being said, there's a lot of guys that never reel it in. So, I, you know, I, I, it's not about a timeline or whatnot. I'm, I'm just thankful and grateful that I've been able to find, you know, my mental and spiritual wellness uh, with, you know, with, with the integration of all these tools. But um, yeah, cer it was certainly a, a process. And then, once you started getting yourself uh, to a certain point and leveling out and find that practice, you said you started to 
you became the thought leader and people started reaching out to you about advice. Is that, is that how it happened? And then, and then uh, you started getting an idea for Athletes for Care came out from there. Can you bridge that gap for me a little bit? Absolutely. Yeah. So, so what happened was um, when I first retired from playing and then started having all these aha moments, understanding the cannabis plant as an industrial resource, the whole bit, I started a nonprofit, <laughs> not knowing nothing about nonprofits, nothing about business. I'm just, again, like just trying to like learn this thing on my own. Started a nonprofit called Hemp Heals Foundation. And uh, I had a relationship with the general manager of Live Nation, Jeff Gordon, um, at, at the time. And, um, and, 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 and my, my idea was say, listen, I understand the cannabis plant in this, in this, in this way. I have this idea of merging music with message, you know, you know, I, not that that's a new concept by any means. Um, and I, I wanted to put on this, this festival in Philly and in, in, at the festival pier and we'll get some, you know, reggae type bands and, you know, it's a you know, smaller type venue, 5,000 people. And he's like, Oh, I love, I love the idea. So the idea would be hemp festival is showcasing the different faces of cannabis. We'd bring in different industrial hemp vendors, industrial, you know, hemp food vendors. They got a local guy in Lancaster selling hemp pretzels and the whole bit. So it started off by me just having this festival uh, around hemp and cannabis and, and showing the different faces of that and having music. And all of a sudden it was like, oh, you know, Riley, you know, Riley's in hemp, you know, Riley is a hempster, <laughs> you know, all this stuff. And so I'd, I'd show up at Flyers alumni stuff and, you know, even, you know, I was still coaching at the time. So um, I was the hemp guy, you know, I was bringing hemp seeds around the, the hockey rink, brought, you know, hemp seeds and hemp protein to the Flyers locker room, which eventually got removed from the shelf because it was a banned substance, according to uh, the, the, the medical staff. And I'm like, God damn, it's like a hemp seed. I mean, it's a food. I mean, this is not a supplement. Yeah, you food. can buy it in Whole Foods, I think. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so I took, a, you know, I, talk, I took a lot of flack and, you know, again, it was like, I'm going up against the grain. I mean, you're going against like archaic thinking and you know, old school thinkers. And um, it didn't, it didn't phase me. I was just like, keep going about my business. So, so eventually as I started doing that more, we did that for like, we, we did, we did that for, we did that for uh, eight years. Um, well, pretty right up until COVID. And, um, yeah, so eventually like uh, the whole hemp heels thing started kind of putting me on, on the speaking circuit, I guess I was like asked to speak here and asked to speak here. And, and then eventually, um, the speaking circuit ran me into other athletes and other athletes talking about their relationship with cannabis. And we had a lot of synergy You're like, Oh, you know, cannabis helped me this way, helped me with my brain, you know, the, the neuroprotectant properties or pain management or, or whatever it landed up being, but a lot of similar stories. And then eventually it landed up being, um, where at the time, um, I don't know if you remember Ryan Kingsbury used to work for Charlotte's web, but Charlotte's web, um, landed up starting to sponsor some of these panels. So I'd go to different conferences and we'd have three or four athletes on these panels. We'd have a medical professional to kind of, um, support, uh, what we're saying, our experiences through science. So it was, it was kind of complimentary and, and it landed up being the same, the same type of guys. And you know them all. I mean, Nate Jackson and, and Evan, and it was like a, a group of five or six of us, um, you know, early on that were in, uh, you know, pounding the pavement and, and speaking about this. So then eventually we were like, okay, well, let, let's make this a little more formal. And that was how athletes for care was, was uh, created. And that was like, se you know, seven years ago. So basically hemp heals, eventually evolved into my efforts of using more of the sports platform to, to, to normalize cannabis and, and the whole bit. And, and really that's kind of the, the long and short of it. It was just, I uh, realized there was more, it was more influence, you know, 
using that sports platform and talking from that angle versus just like a guy talking about all things hemp. And, and I still love the whole, what, what I did with the whole hemp heels thing. It was, it was just like that stepping stone for me to kind of get where I, I guess where I needed to go and where I was going. So, yeah, no, absolutely. That's a, a great, great uh, story and segue. <clears throat> yeah. I, I think I was on Ryan Kingsbury's podcast not that long ago. So yeah, I definitely uh, remember. So that's cannabis. And um, a few years ago, and it, uh, I don't know that I don't remember the timing because everything but COVID kind of threw me off with timing. It seems like it's a year ago. <laughs> yeah, right. Maybe it's three both. years. I have yeah. no idea. Like time warp. <laughs> Whatever it is, it's uh, I just call it BC, like BC. Uh, <laughs> right. I remember that Dan, uh, Daniel Carcillo came out and he had uh, a whole bunch of different. Uh, I think there was some conversation about some mental uh, challenges that he was going through at the time. And, uh, you know, and I, I see, I see the shift in what he's doing now. And I see that there is a connection between you and he, and, uh, I, I love the idea of, you know, having these issues with mental health brought up to the forefront. And it doesn't have to be a diagnostic condition because even people that get diagnosed with, uh, depression, clinical depression, the, or so of them have genetic predisposition to treatment-resistant depression. So even if they go and they get their traditional, you know, SSRIs, antidepressants, it's not going to work for them. And they're still going to get all the side effects from that. And I see sort of the transition to looking at your body, looking at other plant medicine and being able to transition, including even ketamine. That's not a plant medicine per se, but it's actually traditional, uh, you know, therapeutic. So, how did you kind of go from cannabis and it's one sort of pillar and sort of start transitioning into some of the other things that like, like psychedelics that, you know, that Dan was, uh, was using as well to help him because it's a great example because you could see it like day one, it's a really bad place. And you could kind of see his journey progressing where now he's becoming that person that people go to as well from what I see. Yeah. So interesting enough, um, you know, I, I've been playing in the mushroom space equally as long as the cannabis space, I just wasn't very vocal about it. It was too soon. It was too soon. Right. It was like, for me, it was like one thing at a time, you know, and there wasn't a whole lot of movement around psilocybin uh, back then that I was aware of outside of like maps, but that was, you know, a a little bit different, you know, it wasn't like uh, it wasn't where cannabis was for sure. And this was, you know, you you forget too, like this is like back in 2010, this is like pre like 2014 farm bill before even CBD was like a thing. Right. Um, And sexy and everyone's talking about it. Um, So I had been, you know, just, just like I was using cannabis, I was mindfully, I was also playing with psilocybin mindfully as well. Um, But quietly, I wasn't talking about it publicly. It was again, I was still employed by the flyers. So like I was riding a fine line talking about hemp and bringing hemp seeds and, you know, hemp protein and CBD around the rink, let alone, you know, bringing the the whole psilocybin mushroom conversation. Uh, I play with Carcillo. Um, I was the guy that reached out to him when he was in the dumps and said, let's, uh, let's, let's, let's meet in Colorado. I'm going to hold some space for you. And, uh, that's what I did. And, you know, since then he's, uh, you know, he's uh, been able to find his mental wealth and wellness and all that good stuff and, and bang the drum. Um, but you know, I guess, and that was, you know, how many years ago now, um, 
like it was before COVID. So, uh, you know, probably three, three, three and a half years ago that that, that happened. But it was right around that, that time. Like I told him, like, like uh, he's seen what I was doing. I brought him out here, even like into Philly area. And he went to one of my hemp heels hockey um, events and, you know, kind of talked about his, his relationship with CBD at the time. Cause I introduced him to that world as well. Um, and then, um, you know, he, he went on to kind of do his own thing, but like at that time I was telling him, like, I'm like, I'm, I'm already speaking about psychedelics now. I mean, like, I'm like, I'm talking about mushrooms in this local, you know, Philadelphia psychedelic chapter. I started to already kind of do it, you know, on a smaller scale. Cause there really wasn't any psychedelic conferences then either, you know, it was, um, and, you know, so, yeah, so in the last three and a half years that I really started talking uh, openly about uh, psychedelics, mainly psilocybin, because that was, you know, the, the psychedelic that I had the most relationship with. And, um, you know, yeah, and then here we are today where I feel like I'm almost speaking more about psilocybin mushrooms now than I, than I am cannabis. But uh, nonetheless, I, I can't forget uh, how important uh, cannabis and, and certain cannabinoids have been. Um, for me in, in my recovery and brain regeneration. Again, the, the, the neuroprotectant stuff is really why I got in this. Hadn't I been, you know, fighting 30, 35 times a year, being punched in the face, you know, several thousand times, I probably wouldn't be as passionate about this. I probably wouldn't even be in the situation at all. So the silver lining of getting my ass beat for years and, you know, and putting my body and mind on the, on, on the line was uh, that I was able to find, again, find my mental wellness and spiritual um, identity and, um, and be able to share my story and, 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 and help people along the way. And do you think this push for now the new like frontier of psychedelics, do you think it has a lot to do with some of the changes in policy and, and the, the business opportunities more like, because we had this whole journey with cannabis and it's sort of stuck in the, in the system. We have, you know, 38 states or whatever to have, uh, I mean, if you look at almost every state has some sort of decriminalization cannabis policy, even if they don't have a cannabis uh, policy right. for legalization or so, but it's still federally legal. But you have all this other research. I mean, accelerated with psychedelics and, you know, ketamine is, is legal by prescription as well. Do you think because the business, uh, like there's a lot of transition from cannabis people now to go into psychedelics. Do you think because the business transitioning there, that's why there's a spotlight and you're talking a lot more about, you know, psilocybin than you are about cannabis this time? Yeah, I think um, what, what I noticed is that, um, is that there's actually more science around psilocybin mushrooms, well, synthetic psilocybin, let's put it this way, because it was out of Johns Hopkins University and it's all, it was all synthesized. There's more psilocybin research in this country than there is cannabis research. And there's no, cannabis is complicated because there's a United Nations treaty that really, like really made the, glo the globe be like hardcore on cannabis, right? I mean, the war on drugs was really the war on cannabis mainly to incarcerate, you know, black and brown people. And, and you know, the, basically the, the, the race war, war on people. Um, and, and also obviously to protect uh, pharmaceutical interests. Right. Um, so I, I think, I think with the age of information and, you know, like say, I don't want to compare psychedelics or mushrooms to cannabis because they're, they are in different dimensions, but age of information, 
it was it was like cannabis on steroids with you know the 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 science that was being released and and all this stuff and then you know maps i mean you know rick doblin rick doblin has been around for you know for 25 years with maps and doing all kinds of great stuff and um and, and i think just like the, the the timing of everything there just seemed to be very i don't know it's just like timely that that um that um people started really seeing this business model of, of psychedelics, big pharma play, right. Big drug development play, which, you know, the, the maps kind of led right through MDMA and, 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 and ketamine and, and synthesized psilocybin. So, you know, there was like this, 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 the investors were coming in and, and putting money into maps for research. And there was like this, this, this movement. And then, and obviously, like plant medicines have been around forever, right? I mean, it's not like you know, mushrooms is not a, a new thing, and, and ayahuasca and, and peyote and, and 5-MeO DMT. I think just people just started to to explore more and be more open about their use, and then it was just kind of like cannabis 2.0 in the sense of like people sharing their stories, people coming out and talking about it. Um, but then there again, like you know, money talks, right? So then all of a sudden, like these all these drug development plays. Everyone wants to get patents. And then all of a sudden, it went from like, oh, this nice, you know, this nice um, project around education and 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 and, st- and studies. All of a sudden, it was like a, a money grab, right? So everyone and their brother is trying to come in and patent this and patent that and 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 control the molecules. And so now you just like cannabis, where. I mean, you still have a, it's still a schedule one drug in here in the U S where pharmaceutical companies have been lobbying against, you know, the, the natural form of cannabis. Well, since, since prohibition, right. I mean, it's, it was, it was, it was, it was that powerful of a, of a movement where you've seen the same thing. You're seeing pharmaceutical companies trying to protect their, you know, their patents and all this other stuff and, and, and still lobbying against the natural forms of, of plant medicine. So I know I'm going off on what you, what you asked, but um, it was almost like, it was like quiet outside of maybe a couple organizations doing some, you know, you say quieter work that the public wasn't overly aware of. So all of a sudden it was like, you know, you know, Tim, Tim Ferriss and Joe Rogan, and all of a sudden some big voices started talking about this. And then, you know, again, it's like just the magic mushroom movement is like, okay, well now it's like microdosing and, and all these different, like just different directions, but there's a lot of excitement around it. So naturally, again, everyone's got social media and different ways to find information that this, this thing accelerated a lot faster than probably cannabis. Cause you know, even you're in California and you know, the, I mean, it's probably 25 years now you've had some sort of legal cannabis in the state, but like the internet was hardly even a thing, you know, when, when, when cannabis first started coming on the scene. So people on the, on the East coast didn't understand what was going on in California and in different part, pockets of the U S didn't really understand what was really going on because it was still really, uh, really uh, hardcore prohibition. Yeah. And I, and I agree with you. And I think a lot of the people uh, who are now in psychedelic research and, and business, they're standing on the shoulders of the people that did this in the cannabis space. So I like, you know, cannabis 2.0. I also think, you know, and you know, this stuff, cannabis is very difficult to study. And for legal reasons, you have to get this stuff from uh, Mississippi and, and all that other stuff. But, but also there's so many constituents in the actual plant. Right. There's so many different molecules. Like if you're studying psilocybin, you're studying psilocybin, you're start studying psilocin, you know, you have the fruit and that's, it's pretty well isolated. Yes. You have different 
types of mushrooms. And you have, you know, uh, the, the golden teachers and the albino penis semi, which I recently experienced, which uh, I didn't realize dosing with golden teacher versus dosing with albino penis semi will give me a complete different microdosing experience, which wasn't a microdose with the other one. So yeah. those are, those are the 100%. other things <laughs> that, that you have to learn, but it's easier to study. I mean, you have a molecule. What does it do on, you know, to your receptors? But cannabis makes it a lot more difficult because it has so many different components. And I also, what you said was this whole notion of microdosing. So I'm a believer that the reason why CBD has gotten sort of this whole, uh, you talk about hemp, but it's gotten this rocket fuel boost because a lot of people who even I talk to, they want the benefits of cannabis, but they don't want to get high. They don't really want to get high. And I remember, I mean, like back in the day, I'm, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm 50 years old. I'll be 50. So I've been around for uh, a few years, but I remember getting, getting our weed back in a day. And I, I wrote in my book about the, uh, the Philly story of getting, uh, getting weed down the way with this guy. <laughs> you know what I'm talking about. Oh, yeah, you drive right? down the way and there's a guy with a tennis ball, right? And it, you, come, you come up to him and you give him your $20 and there's like two dime bags in there, but he doesn't hand it to you. He takes the tennis ball and he throws it to his buddy down the street and it's cut in the middle. So the guy, so there's no exchange of money to the guy that's actually giving you the weed. But the weed that we were getting is like, we have to take this, the stems out. We have to take the seeds out. <laughs> and right, if you look yeah. at that, it's like 7% THC. If you're getting 10% THC, it's like the kindest kind but in the world. Now, you know, we have concentrates. I was just with a, with a guy recently who's, uh, the, his company owns the clear, which is 99% THC. I mean, the amount of receptor binding, what it does to you. So people from back in the day, they're like, Hey, I want the benefits of it. I want, I know what kind of, but I just cannot get it like that high. And I think the microdosing, a whole uh, movement is yes. going along those ways as well. Yeah, it mimics like the CBD movement for sure. Yeah, I get it. It opens up a whole other, you know, uh, cannabis consumer, right? A whole other market for people that wouldn't be tr- traditional cannabis users, like the soccer mom or the hockey dad, or you know what I mean? Like all of a sudden it's like, okay, a daily supplement. And that's what the, the microdose uh, movement really is, right? I mean, you don't have to be a, a, a psychedelic enthusiast to appreciate a, a supplement that, yeah, it helps you become more present and focused and find flow, right? You hit the nail on the head. It's exactly it. It's finding flow. Uh, and I just finished Stephen Kotler's uh, uh, Flow Research Collective uh, class on that, on flow. And what microdosing was doing for me, what, if I go hike and I microdose, every single thing that I see becomes clearer. I'm not, yeah. I'm not tripping. Mm-hmm. I'm just getting present, connected, yeah. and the green is that much greener. Yeah. But unless I took the albino uh, penis. Yeah, yeah, right. You're you're a mini dose. I was like, I was, I was moving into that, uh, you know, into that. Like the whole Mario, like level up, you know? (laughs) Exactly, man. Exactly. So, so from a business standpoint, uh, what are, what are some of the innovative things that you're working on uh, right now? So I got, I got a few different irons in the fire in, in the cannabis space. And one of them blends over into the, the mushroom space. Um, so I got a hemp derived CBD and functional mushroom company called Body Check Wellness. And I've had that for 
you know, four years. Um, and, you know, just the, kind of like the, the microdosing world, it's just like a daily supplement, right? This is, these are all, these are all under the farm bill. Um, and, um, you know, really focus on full spectrum, I'm a big believer in all the cannabinoids and, you know, the, the, the terpenes, the whole bit. And then, you know, playing into that legal fun- functional mushroom space, the lion's mane, cordyceps, reishi. So again, to complement the cannabinoids, get a, some mushrooms in there um, for some of our products. Um, and then the the, the, the couple projects that I'm working on outside of that, that could be, well, will be integrated once it's all fully up and running is a, um, is a, a project with a state university here in Pennsylvania. It's the oldest historically black university in the U.S. called Cheney University. I'm sure you're familiar um, being, being from Philly. Um, so we're building out a, a cannabis curriculum with the school. And uh, as, as well as a uh, as a cannabinoid extraction facility in one of their buildings on their campus, it is, it is hemp to start, and we're applying for a DEA license to bring in the THC, and then phase three would be the DEA license to study psilocybin. But right now, we're we got like eighty percent of the curriculum down, and we got grants involved. We got um, about eighty percent of the equipment uh, ordered and sitting in the building right now. We're just waiting for the township approval for ethanol within the building. Um, so that is really um, a project of cannabinoid research, then eventually getting the mushroom research, obviously the, 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 the curriculum itself, right? I mean, historically the black community has been the most affected by pro- prohibition. So there's this amalgamations component, social justice piece um, along with it. But, but the idea is uh, they, they've de- dedicated about five acres um, probably only use one for the, the the cultivation component. So basically, we're teaching them how to grow, understand you know, genetics, soil, uh, the processing, extraction, isolation, formulation, and marketing of cannabis um, through the school, and then hopefully build up a. Well, the plan is to build essentially a workforce of you know whether they're in the hemp space or cannabis space. I mean, it's plug and play. I mean, it's this, essentially the same thing minus a couple of variables. If you're talking about indoor grow and some other variables there, but you know, we're trying to help um, help the black community get into the cannabis space, um, and then that that integrates into the body check. And then the other project that we're just uh, we're just actually in the middle of launching right now is it, it lands up being a a um, a recreational adult use cannabis company called Twenty Two Collective. Where again, I've been in the cannabis space for so long. I met so many awesome people in the space and some real OGs. Um, so I've partnered up with a few different guys that. Um, are pretty well known in, uh, in, in their field, in their lane around ex- extraction, um, around, uh, you know, live rosin, stuff like that. Um, but OGs in the space that already have a following um, and, and putting together this collective of, uh, of, of genetics and growers. And, and, and then we're in the middle of, of sealing a couple of deals in different states and essentially trying to be a multi-state operator. But the feeder system would be the chaining operation. This is basically cultivating a workforce um, through a state university and then and feeding it into our, into our business models. And then it's, it's kind of all, all tied together. If that makes any sense. It makes total sense. I love that program at, at Cheney. And if you ever need a lecture or somebody to come in and talk about genetics, not yeah. on the plant side, but on the human side, I'd love to support and help in any way. That yeah. I'll we'll definitely take you up on that. Well. I think that's an important piece for sure. Yeah. Especially like drug to drug interaction, how right. cannabinoids can interact with all that stuff. Yeah, I, I love that. And the, the the program that you're putting together, if there if that can be modeled in different universities, because I know 
USC has something similar. There's a couple of universities here and there. But if we can make this a standard program, we train the students to be the workers in the brand new industry that's a you know a hundred billion dollar uh, industry potential, and then and then it provides classes and they're doing it the right way. And hopefully it'll it'll remove this ridiculous stigma around the plant and and different plants, uh, plant medicine in general. So I, right. I really like. I like I love that idea. It makes total sense. Yeah, uh, the plan is to scale it. Right, we already have interest from uh, Delaware. There was a Delaware State. Um, that's you know we just want to get this one down first, and then you know say cookie cutter and and also we not just create a workforce. There's a there's a business element too that we're that we've included in the. Uh, in the curriculum where, you know, empowering them, if you, you know, if you want to be like a cannabis executive or actually own your own cannabis company, it's not just about like training, just like robots. Right. I mean, we want these people to find their niche, find their lane and whatever, you know, whatever suits them. If it's cultivation extraction, if you're in the business side of things, you appreciate the business of cannabis, you know, um, maybe there's a final place, you know, as an executive or owner in somewhere, in somewhere too. So the plan is to scale it for sure. I know other, other groups are doing similar stuff, um, but, um, not, not, I haven't heard of anyone that's actually bringing, you know, actual extraction machines onto a state university's campus with grants and stuff like that. Um, it's more like just like plopping external type of education programs. It's one-on-one type of stuff. This one's a little bit, uh, a little bit more intricate. So, um, yeah, you know, it's, a, it, it's exciting because again, the black community has been the most affected. And, and obviously I'm just, I'm just a white Canadian dude, but you know, I've been around the culture of cannabis long enough to, to appreciate, um, um, what, what needs to be done and, and you know, and, and how to, um, make, well, at least, at least help make right for some of the wrongs that have been done with prohibition. Absolutely. And you hit the nail on the head. It's, it's racism is the reason why cannabis is legal in the first place. So yeah, it's, if there's a way to, to give back and train, I think that's that's a great way uh, to be able to do that. Um, <clears throat> and a question just popped in my head, completely off topic, as my ADD kicked in. <laughs> I remember because I was I remember talking to uh, Dan McCarty about this, and you know, he was describing his most memorable fight. And obviously, it's uh, the Claude Lemieux thing, where yeah, right. you know that that whole I forget what they called it, the something of the Joe. What, 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 the, Whatever they called it when they fought the avalanche, you, you know the whole. Yeah, thing. I remember absolutely. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> it was, I mean, I was so happy. By the way, I hated Darren McCarty. The first oh, thing he you? said, well, the, the and the reason why is because they swept the Flyers four straight right. in ninety uh, seven. Yeah. So the first thing he did was come on the podcast. He's like, I know you hate me, so yeah. let's clear the air wide. <laughs> it, was, it was great. So I was just thinking, uh, do you have like a most memorable uh, fight? There's a couple of them. Like I had some really good fights against a guy named Sean Thornton uh, that was in, in Boston. He, I, I'd fought him a bunch in the minor leagues. He's more my size. So like we'd be more opened up and like more memorable fights that way. We're just like, you know, punch for punch. Um, my most memorable win was against a guy named Andre Waugh in, in Philly when I, well, two punched him, but it was a, it was an MS night. My sister was in town from Winnipeg. She has MS and I landed up fighting this guy two times in almost the exact same spot, but uh, landed up uh, dropping him pretty good and, and, you know, making a highlight reel thing out of it. Um, but I also had like, against some like the legitimate super heavyweights in the league, like George the Rock um, had a couple pretty good tilts against a guy that probably should should kill me, uh, honestly, um, and, and a couple other legitimate heavyweights where I would say like these are memorable fights because I'm going up against guys that I shouldn't be fighting in the first place. 
Um, yeah, so there's probably like five or six fights that I like, you know, when, when I, when people bring up fighting, I'm like, those ones come to mind. Um, so I know it was a little bit loose, but no, no, that's, that's, uh, yeah. George LaRock. I mean, like, yeah, that's, <laughs> it's a heavy, uh, it's a heavyweight, uh, battle for sure. Um, <laughs> so have, what was some of the like better advice that you received in the years that you may want to share? Ooh. Um, yeah, I mean, I, I've gotten a lot of good advice. Um, um, i trying to think, you know, I think, you know, like, like simple stuff, like, and this is like real cliche and this, I'll just, I'll just talk about like from my parents standpoint, cause there's two things I remember from like my childhood and my, my parents upbringing, um, was work hard and have a good attitude. Right. I know it's like, okay, well, yeah, we're great. I mean, everyone says that. Right. But but there are two variables that are extremely important and attitude probably being the most important because you can work your ass off and have a bad attitude and that will eliminate any shot you have. Um, so having a good attitude. And I, I would say like outside of my effort, which was like the, the working hard part, my attitude, I always really took pride in having a good attitude. And it's probably the reason I ever had a sniff with the flyers. I worked my ass off and I got noticed through being physical, which, you know, fell in line with the culture of the flyers and broad street bullies. But more importantly, I had a good attitude. You know, I was John Stevens, like loved my attitude. I was the first guy there. I was a good team guy. I didn't cause any shit. You know, I was just like, if I, if you scratch me, be the hardest worker the next day, the hardest worker on the bike. You know what I mean? It was just like the good attitude. I think then outside of those two, eventually on the back end of my career was not so much working hard was working smart. So then I got into coaching, um, you know, part of like my thing was like, just, not just like be hardest, the hardest worker and like, and, and, and run around like the village idiot. Like you actually have to like work smart, you know? And that was like a different philosophy for me. Cause I was just like, let's go as hard as we can into the, into the boards or let's go to the hard as we can. And let's fight as hard as we can and not worry about like defense. So it was like, there's this element of, uh, of working smart. And is it, is, is it a mind blowing concept? No, but it's amazing when you're more in alignment and actually working smart versus just like overly hustling. So I like, I have a mala that, I, that has a little, engra- a little engravement on it and it says uh, alignment over hustle. So it was just a way of perspective of, of, of thinking, right. It's just like the hardest worker in the world doesn't necessarily mean he makes the most money. Right. I mean, you could be a slave in the, in, in the rice field, like working your bag off and you're, you're making sense. And I understand some people in some countries, like they don't have the luxury of, of maybe if tapping into your, your purpose and, and all that stuff. So they're forced to, to make a living and that's just what they do. But, you know, in this country here, we, there, we have opportunity, right. And there's so much opportunity that you, you have to find alignment with what's, um, soothing the spirit and, 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 but then again, taking the attitude of hard work. Yes. But refining it a little bit more and being in alignment. I think those two things jump out to me um, the most, but then we talked about a little bit uh, earlier is like, everyone talks about this big word peace, right. And peace, peace, world peace and peace, this and peace that, um, you know, and, um, and this was a piece of advice that really not through a person, but just like through studying yoga and like the yoga sutras um, around understanding peace as it is within us right i mean this this peace it's it's already there it's always been there we just are too noisy we're too distracted we never really just tune in find stillness to, to find it 
I think like that, that to me was like the most important because it's like, once you find that, um, well, you can always tap into it, right. When things aren't going right. And you know what I mean? And you are still stuck in the hustle and bustle and you're stressed out or it's like, okay, let's not just take a deep breath, but like, let's, 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 let's actually sit for a while, calm the mind, um, find stillness and tap into that piece that's already there. So I know that that's again long winded there, but those those elements there have been probably the most useful for me in finding uh, finding my way. I, I love that; it's great. Let me let me unpack a little bit what you said uh, for a minute about peace and standing still and taking a breath. You know, like I I did the transcendental meditation, and it's it's a, it's a process, right? Like you're sure. supposed to do it twenty minutes a day, twenty minutes a, uh, twice a day, basically, and. Uh, but you know, I've I've talked to different people about if if there's something I don't have 20 minutes a day. I, I you know everybody should have 20 minutes a day, but just in case. And you just said something about like slowing down and taking a breath. And is, is there a quick thing that we can kind of share with the with the the audience and say, okay, maybe you can just to find that inner peace, maybe just do this, take a breath. Because I know, I know Evan uh, does that uh, yeah. a lot with the, with his stuff. So maybe you can share something, a quick uh, technique to get people sent more centered. Yeah. I, th- I think what you said there is, 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 is a good start for sure. Right. I mean, it's like, just, 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 just quieting. Even if it's for like for, for, for two minutes, just like, you know, if you find yourself stressed out, maybe if you're, you can, you can escape that, that situation for a moment and just like go into another room and just like couple, take a couple deep breaths where there's no distractions. Um, and, and just, just, just tune in, right. Just kind of just like breathe. Right. I mean, we, we've almost forgotten how to breathe, um, as, as human beings, right. We're so become shallow breathers and it's like, you know, the anxiety builds up or we become mouth breathers. So it's like, like starting to breathe through the nose, some, some deep breaths in deep breaths. So I think that's like the simplest, the simplest way to in that moment, because obviously, like if you're in the moment, you're not going to say, "Okay, I'm going to go meditate for an hour," and it's just like not in the cards, right? right so, like right. that would be the simplest thing that I I, I could suggest would just be like, um, you know, step out of the stressful situation for a second, um, reflect, and just and, and tap into the breath. And I say through the nose, just like just 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 kind of be right. It's kind of what we were just talking about just like just find if you can find that present moment. Because right, if you're anxious and stressed, is generally because you're not living in the present moment, right? You're either emotionalizing past behaviors and generating anxiety, or or you're 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 worrying about the future, and you know everything's kind of jumbled up. So it's always every spiritual teaching on the planet talks about the present moment, right? I mean, coming back to the moment and back to the breath. When I teach yoga, it's like the cue is like. If you find your mind water wandering, bring your attention back to the breath. Because once you bring your attention back to the breath, you're in the you're in the present moment. Um, not that easy to do sometimes if you have no practice, and that's where it goes back to the practice. Um, you know, I, what was the the quote? It's like you know, meditate 20 minutes a day, and if you're busy, meditate an hour. It's just because <laughs> we can make excuses that we don't have time for it. Where like if you actually generate a practice. Like your life becomes more skill, everything becomes more skillful. You're able to just flow through life a little bit more instead of being so rigid. And I and I was that rigid guy, even though I, I had a good attitude and worked hard. I was still rigid, right? I mean, it was just like this and that, and like muscle this and muscle that. Where I think the more you have this practice, the more you can kind of just flow or let things, 
go right. Letting go is a huge part of uh, of a spiritual practice, and not letting it build up, and letting tension go, and letting you know some of this grip of life go, right? And but I think that's easier to do when you're actually in the moment versus again, like if you're if you're in anxiety or you're, you're dealing with depression, it's hard to wrap your head around these concepts. But if you can reel it in, I think that's what psychedelics do. We talk about the microdosing, right? I mean, it's like it helps you bring into the moment. So it's like okay. Um, you know, obviously the, the goal is to do it without any sort of substance at some point. Right. And that could complement it and, and be part of the integration process. But I mean, all signs lead to the present moment. There's, there is no other time than now. We just forget that. And I think we're doing this, this crazy rat race we're living in. People have a hard time understanding that. So, yeah. um, just, uh, it's, it's great. It's great advice and great feedback and, and, and just breathing through your nose. It, it changes you know, you're you're in your parasympathetic nervous system, and all this, all these uh, norepinephrine, all these things are flowing through your bloodstream. And if you think you're going to make good decisions in that way, uh, you know, you're not. And if if you can just take a step aside and just do what you said, breathe and just relax for a minute, just breathe yeah. through your nose. That's it. And I think you'll you'll be in a much better uh, position, to make good decisions. But and you brought something up that I wanted to uh, just ask a question on because I had a friend of mine who has uh, severe anxiety, probably depression, anxiety, depression is sort of the same, the same sure. thing. It's connected for sure. Very connected. And he's like, uh, yeah, you know, I said, let's go hike. He's Oh no, 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 I'm not, not ready to go hiking yet. Uh, you know, uh, I, I really want to, I really want to go f- get, get going for a walk or something. I'm like, so, so just, go for a walk, just start slow. No, you don't understand. You can't just go for a walk. That's what you keep saying. But when I'm in this state, I can't just go for a walk. I can barely make it, you know, my way from the, uh, the bed to the couch. And it's like, it's like this whole, all the anxiety and stress, it got thrown back on me because I told him, Hey, just go for a walk. And he's like, I don't understand. So part of it, I think is, you're making an excuse for yourself. So you're giving yourself an out to be able to do that. But part of it, because, you know, luckily I don't have that kind of thing, but I don't, I'm not always like mentally, Hey, let's go and let's do this. But you know, you have some down moments too, but I don't, I'm not, I don't have clinical depression. So I can't really relate hundred percent, but maybe what you just said is a combination of microdosing and a combination of, you know, being present for the moment, taking those breaths Giving yourself a little bit of, uh, you know, today I'm going to go walk and I'm going to walk to the end of the block. And with no agenda, nothing uh, to gain from that except for I'm going to go breathe and maybe I'll breathe 10 times through my nose and see how long I can hold it. And you worked with the people, you mentored people like, uh, you know, uh, like, like Dan we were talking about. How do you break through that sort of no, 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 I'm in a bad space. You don't understand. You're not relating to that. How do you get them to sort of start looking at that? Because, I mean, I, I think they want to heal. And I'm not saying that we're going to give them the panacea. They're going to heal right away. But what are some of those steps? Is it, is it just breathe kind of thing that you were just saying? Well, it's, you know, that, that's, that, that would be certainly a starting point, right? Because it's absolutely fundamental to, to grounding breathe, you know, breath. Um, but like what I've realized too, and from my own experience and from like just working with people and hearing stories is like, 
I mean, you hear of like depression and anxiety and in the Western world, in the industrialized world, especially in the medical realm, right? We just want to put terms on things and we want to make everything like this, put it in a medical bucket so we can prescribe something. But like my personal belief is these things are, these aren't medical issues necessarily. They're spiritual issues. It's a lack of connection. So lack of connection to breath, lack of connection to diet, lack of connection to mother nature, lack of connection to just our, our, our bodies, right. To ourselves, right. We have no relationship to ourselves and no and our relationships to people are, are often uh, off, but it's a connection issue, right. And connection is, it's not, yeah, it lands up being chemical eventually, but it, it lands up being spiritual. When you disconnect from nature, you disconnect from diet, which is part of nature because we're supposed to be eating natural foods. Um, you disconnect from your medicine and we're disconnected to self, right? There's the ego, right? Obviously we all have one and, but we've, we've become embodied in the ego and we forgot that we're spiritual beings living this physical life. So and I know most people struggle with the whole spiritual conversation because it's, it's a little bit esoteric. It's not something that you see, right? It's all based on intuition and feeling. And not, energy. not in LA. I mean, every single person you meet, they're spiritual in LA. So. Yeah, right, right. Yeah, exactly. I forget what, what planet I'm living <laughs> on here, but, but, but I, I guess like, it's, it's a connection issue, right? So like, you know, for your, your buddy, you mentioned there, it's like, he might think like going for a walk is, he thinks about it as physical exercise. Why? And so it seems like a lot of work to do, but maybe just like, just go stand in the sun, just go stand and get some sunlight, just go outside. You know what I mean? And just connect. You know what I mean? Is that like get the energy of the sun on you. You know what I mean? Absorbing some vitamin D, hearing the birds chirp, you know, breathing some fresh air, maybe just taking a couple of deep breaths. So it's like, then it's like, not, doesn't appear to be work necessarily right it's like it's because like walking for some people is like even though there's actually a little bit of work there right you're, you're exuding some sort of energy maybe just going outside and taking your shoes off and just standing in the grass you know what i mean just like you just ground out somehow like you know what i mean it's these aren't complicated ideas they're just they require some sort of discipline some sort of practice but to me we, we've been, we've almost forgotten that we're spiritual beings and we've disconnected to the natural world fully. I mean, you look at what's going on around the world and, and everything is synthesized, you know, synthetic fibers, synthetic this. And most of our diets are synthesized and genetic and modified. And like, how can you be well when you've, when you've disconnected from source, right? I mean, if you want to call it God, source, mother nature, this like divine energy that's present around us all the time. We're just like, we're just, com we're completely disconnected to it all and then and then, then we we chase it through stimulants we chase it through uh yeah other toxic pleasures whether it's gambling or addiction to sex or whatever that lands up being technology i mean it could be, everything's drawing you away from that piece we're talking about right drawing you away from the peace and we're trying to reel it in and, and the more connected you are the the closer you are to peace um and i know that's a a little bit of an all over answer, but um, I think one step at a time, if we can create more connection um, and it starts with just like starting with mother nature, just, just go out in the sun, just go outside. You don't have to go walk two miles. You don't have to do CrossFit. You don't have to do any of this stuff. Just be human. Just simple fundamentals, connecting, walking out, no shoes on, getting a little fresh air, just a couple of deep breaths. Um, 
And then, and then, and then you, it's at least a foundation to build off. And then you can get obviously more into nitty gritty, re- refining our diet. It's like starting to remove all the, 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 the inflammatory foods, all the, the chemicals and the nitrates and then this and then that, you know what I mean? That's all not serving us. Um, and then slowly, but surely, I think you just start feeling better, right? You feel more connected when you're feeling more connected, you're able to be more present, but it's hard to be present when we're not connected, we're just all over the place. It's like in the rustle and bustle of life, which is like chasing money, chasing pleasure, you know? Um, and that's, you know, partly by design, right? The system itself wants that, right? Because then when people aren't connected, they're easily manageable. They easily induce fear. We can get them, we get them in fear. We can get them to do anything. And that's, you know, uh, that's for another day, but like, you know, it's, um, it's complicated, but it's not that complicated. The complicated part is just like generating yourself a practice, right? And a practice doesn't have to be seven days of physical practice of yoga. It's just like maybe getting up a half hour earlier and maybe instead of jumping on your phone right away, maybe it's just like sitting for five minutes in peace and just like listening to the birds chirp in the morning. Just, I mean, once the, the, the weather turns, just going outside and, and catching, you know, some fresh air and, and some, and some early sunlight there. And then, then getting into the in the business of right, then it's tapping into your emails and whatever else you got to do because you know obviously we have to we have to make a living here too. But I think little 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 wins here and there, little wins instead of having the coffee first thing in the morning on an empty stomach, maybe it's just drinking some some clean water with some Himalayan pink salt and, and focusing on hydration and purifying and cleansing, you know, the system a little bit versus like right away out of the gate inducing anxiety. You know, some some servings. I know coffee has a interesting way to to stimulate the nervous system and you know and generate anxiety if you cross that threshold, which most people seem to do. And then they're chasing the dragon, right? And then all of a sudden they're they're stimulated all day, and then the sugar and the sugar and this and that, more coffee and espresso, and and then all of a sudden they're capping it off with booze. So it's like. Start by focusing on sleep and waking up in the morning, finding some sort of practice, then building off that. Right? It's, it takes time. It took me years to figure, you know, years to figure this out. But it's like little win after little win. You start feeling better. Start feeling better. Start feeling better. Finding more presence, and hopefully, you can you know find your way that way. So, a hundred percent. I and I agree with you. The the connection to nature that was my biggest thing. Like during COVID. And I wasn't a big hiker. I live in LA and like people take this for granted. We have sun all year round and I'm sitting like, what am I doing? And you can't go out. So I'm like, I'm going to go hike because I was like nothing else to do. And I started going off trail and that connection to nature, just hiking, breathing. And there's nobody out there, but there's all kinds of animals out there. And I'm like, that changed. I said, you know what, what else can I do from there? Well, maybe I can give up sugar altogether, just no sugar. And then I saw my body transforming from there. And it's like you said, building blocks. That connection to nature was the major thing. Going to the gym and working out doesn't give me the same thing, not even close close. to what it is as a walk in nature, man. That's the greatest thing. Yeah, I know. And and, and I love that you said that because I I tell people this all the time. It's like, like, remove the idea that you have to like, try and outwork a bad diet. Like you got to go to the gym to like, to lose this weight, right? Like, like you're missing the point. Like that, that, that's just like, like you may as well just go run, jump into a hamster wheel and, and just like, and just, just run. You're better off. Like you just said, just, just like, just go outside and, and just, just, just walk just basic fundamentals. You don't have to sprint. 
You don't have to walk any faster than, than just a basic walk. But that is way more impactful for the mind and the spirit than, than going to Shapes or Gold's Fit, you know, Gold's Gym and, and then cranking out this like highly stressful and highly taxing on the joints type of exercise, where it's just like, it, it, I guess it just shows the, the delusional thinking that we've, that we've kind of got ourselves into, right? Is that we're trying to, we're, we're trying to outwork a bad lifestyle. And, and then, but in fact, that actually induces more stress. If it's about stress management and anxiety management, but like you said, going outside, just breathing the air, hike. I mean, and, and people think a hike, it's like, well, you, like hiking Mount Everest. No, hike, just like, just go walk it. Just, just go for a trail. Walk, it doesn't matter if it's like, if it's elevated or not, just like, yeah. just, just, just go in nature for a few minutes and, and, and just like, and connect and, and like little things too, like, like, like fire up a garden. Like, you know what I mean? Just like, like, like a small patch and just grow yeah. something. Yeah. Grow you some weed. Some yeah, weed yeah. and then and then some psilocybin. Some right? Yeah, exactly. Yeah, exactly. You get your, your cucumbers. You get your, your your cannabis and you get your mushrooms. And then you get your food and your medicine. And there you then go. You, you're That's connected too, right? You're touching Mother Nature. You're in Mother Nature. I mean, people forget like we are we are nature. Like we're not like excluded from it. Like we are it. Like and again, I don't know where along the lines. I think Industrial Revolution. I think really helped disconnect us completely to to reality. Um, you know, everything is so much easier and synthesized and this and this and this. And then there's all of a sudden it's like, we just take for granted that like, this is, this is, this is reality, but it, it's not, you know, and, um, it's just going to take people. It's just, it's, it's consciousness, right? It's just awareness. It's just, it's just, we need to understand our behaviors before we fix them. You need to bring awareness to our behaviors before you ever address them. Otherwise you're constantly, you know, in the cycle of, uh, perpetual uh destruction i guess right i mean it's like a downward spiral it's like death and decay is on the way 100 yeah well said um let me kind of shift over to the last i always ask my guests these uh three questions and maybe a bonus question so uh maybe a little bit difficult so just get ready for for those if you can uh, rack your memory so please describe your first experience with cannabis i couldn't remember that one 15 years old at my buddy's house and it wasn't flour. It was, it landed up being some sort of hash oil where we did the old school on the old element, the blades. And I remember like those, the, the, the circular coil <laughs> blades, putting the, the, the night hot knife in there and doing, um, and that was like a psychedelic experience for me because I never used cannabis before and it was highly concentrated. And we did like three of these oil blades where well, I remember <laughs> laughing my ass off on the couch into tears and then tripping myself out. Like where the tears, I thought I was crying and then I was confused and what was happening. And then I started to freak out and, and I didn't know what was going on. So I told myself actually after that experience, I'm like, cause my, I grew up in a pretty you know conservative religious family. Like where I told myself, I'm never going to do drugs, you know, never do drugs. So I did that. I'm like, Oh, I, I know why people aren't supposed to do drugs. I almost lost my mind. So I actually took like a year off that I ever, you know, touched cannabis again. But that was the first time, 15 years old, before I moved away from home uh, to play junior hockey. But yeah, man, it was, uh, it was something. Intense experience, but it, oh, didn't, yeah. it didn't stop you. You tried it again afterwards. I'm sure you had a better experience next time. Yeah, it was just wasn't, it was, it was the next time I used cannabis was dry flour. So much less concentrated. Like you hear all these horror stories of people like eating way too many edibles or over consuming the dab. And then they have like this real sense of paranoia. It's like, you know, the nervous system is almost fried from that much cannabis. You know what I mean? You talked about the, the, the cannabis earlier around 7%, 10%. 
Um, you know, back then maybe it wasn't as high as like, you know, the, the 35% of flour and then making it into oil. Um, but nonetheless, you know, the, the more concentrated you go, you know, the more of a negative side effect you can have with cannabis. So it's like, you know, like the, the, the doses, the medicines in the dose, right? I mean, yeah. And, and also your, your genetic predisposition, like if you're prone to stress activity and you're going to take something that's triggering and method of consumption, like you said, right. an edible, they'll convert it to level oxyhydroxide. You're a poor metabolizer. It's going to be a slower onset, but man, it's going to hit you really, really hard. Right. If you're not right. used to it. Yeah. It can be a pretty oh, yeah. <laughs> right. Um, so I'm a pretty big music guy. Uh, you know, that's see vinyl and all that stuff. Um, what was? Do you remember the first concert you ever went to? First concert, yeah, uh, Green Day. Green Day back in the day, yeah, yep. Yeah, I'm a big music guy as well. I mean, especially when I started playing for the Flyers, we had obviously the luxury of going to every show. So I just like took advantage. I mean, every show that I could get to for in every genre of music from country to Metallica. Um, I've had the, actually the luxury of, of, uh, going to Eddie Van Halen's studio and hanging out with him. Um, so yeah, a little bit of everything. Yeah. It's awesome, man. I, uh, <clears throat> cause you're a Philly, you know, Philly guy too. I used to be a music buyer for tower records in Philly. Oh, okay. So cool. I got exposed to all kinds of music. And I have awesome. a huge vinyl collection too. Uh, is there an album or like a, a song that made an, a, an impact on your life? Man, there's there's so many there's so many songs that have impacted me. I'm just thinking of like you know when I hear a song, it's almost like again it triggers like memories in the past. And again, there's like almost different generations of my different parts of my life were triggered. Um, the one specifically, geez, uh, I wouldn't even know where to begin with that. I mean, you know, I like, again, like even like back when I was in high school, you know, like, you know, like notorious, like Biggie Smalls. Right. I mean, so I was like the hip hop, but also like, there was a lot of, um, like punk, like no effects and, and less than Jake and stuff like that. Um, but like, oh man, I don't know. I'm the same, I'm the same way. I'm the same way as you, because it it all depends on the mood. Like sometimes I'll listen to Prince. Sometimes I'll listen to NWA. Sometimes I'll listen to, uh, I I don't know, Metallica, or sometimes I'll listen to John Mayer or somebody or like uh, Muddy Waters. So it's all in the mood. Yeah. Or Beatles. You're absolutely right. Yeah, hundred percent. Yeah, I'm actually, my girls were on the iPad there today, and they played uh, Celine Dion, "The Power of Love," and I was like, <laughs> not that I was like a huge Celine Dion fan, but you know, I appreciated her work. Obviously, she's an of amazing uh, singer, but like, it brought me back to like, like one of those uh, like, like, like school dances, where yeah. like it was like the power of love, right? That yeah. was like the song of that era, but it was just like, just like immediately brings me back. I'm like, wow. Uh, at, at least they didn't play. At least they didn't play "Let It Go" like the Frozen one over and over. I remember my daughter was little, and the, that came oh, right. out. Like, oh my god, over and over. Oh and yeah, over. that song's got yeah. my memory too. <laughs> yeah, oh yeah, I think I know all the all, all those songs for sure too. But yeah, no, I'm a I'm a big big music fan, and uh, and um, and just appreciate appreciate all of it, and it's all got its place. And but yeah, it's amazing how it just just brings the memories, you know, just bring it back and emotionalize the past through music. Yeah, absolutely agree with you. Uh, what has cannabis meant in your life? Um, cannabis has meant, um, um, it's meant hope. It's meant healing. It's meant opportunity. Uh, it's meant community, um, connection. 
Um, she's a little bit of everything. It's been a huge part of my life. I mean, again, I've been cannabis consumer since I was 15 years old and, and obviously my relationships relationship with cannabis has evolved over time, but yeah, all, all of the above it's brought me, um, a, a, you know, a lot of interesting things, people, connection, uh, opportunity, like I said, um, and hope and healing, like all the, all these things. I mean, it's all kind of all over, but yeah, all, all of the above. Love that. Um, all right. So bonus question, please describe what your room looked like growing up. So my room was in the basement. Uh, well, my, my first house, so I, I moved a couple of times growing up, but, um, I landed up moving from, I had two sisters, we had like a three bedroom house, my first little, you know, rancher type house. And, uh, I landed up eventually moving into the basement where I had, it was like an unfinished basement where I had the ability to, to kind of make it my own. So it was like, went from like this unfinished basement to, um, uh, to posters everywhere. And, um, you know, just, just, just different things I was able to so, put in So there. what kind, what kind of posters were there? Like Mark Messier hockey posters? Was, yeah. Was oh yeah. A lot of, a lot of hockey stuff, a lot of hockey stuff. Um, um, a couple of seconds. Yeah. Mark Messier was definitely on my wall. Yeah. So Winnipeg Jets stuff. I even did like, you know, took the old like small hockey cards and made like a collage of them. And, um, and, you know, and even, and then I was like in this phase of like drawing and it wasn't a great drawer, but like, I went through this phase of like drawing, um, just different things that I was like looking at and, and then I would put them up on my wall. So, um, and then I had these like, um, I don't know if you remember, like in the say eighties, I got them from my parents, but they, these tall white speakers, they were like, they were, they were rectangular and but tall and had like this, the black circle them. I had this old school, um, like, like music system that my parents kind of gave to me. So I had it set up in my room and, and I thought I was badass and I'd plug in like, you know, back then it was like cassette tapes and I plugged in like the auxiliary cord and I was playing music in there. Um, trying to think what else was in there. I had a desk in there that, um, that, you know, that I was going to do my drawings and stuff like that. I had all my, you know, you know, when you're younger, you have like, you get like little things given to you and you think that you're like, you're, you're going to put it in this like safe, safe drawer. You know, I was always kind of like there, but yeah, it's a standard size room, but it was like, um, it was in the basement and, you know, I kind of finished it off myself. Very cool. Uh, where can people find out about you? Where can people find you, your projects? Uh, and you also do a podcast, right? Yeah. Yeah. I have a, a hockey centric, well, flyer centric hockey podcast called Nasty Knuckles. We're 63 episodes deep, which is a lot of fun. We actually filmed, filmed one today uh, with Bob the Hound Kelly with old school Broad Street Bully. Awesome dude. Um, but um, yeah, my Instagram handle is Riley Cote32. And uh, there's actually, you know, the, the other handles within that that kind of uh, are connected to some of my business projects. Uh, um, and you can reach out to me there, RileyCote.com, my website that kind of just, whatever, it's kind of like my Instagram page, really, just kind of like what I'm up to and all that stuff. And I didn't want to, I didn't want to mention, we talked about the psilocybin, but the next week I'm going to Jamaica um, with this company that I'm an investor, an investor in and an advisor for called Wake. And we're doing um, a uh, E60 documentary with ESPN. Cool. So actually, Eb- Eben will be there and, and a couple of Athletes for Care members. Um, and Steve Downey, one of, one of my old teammates uh, that's been, been been struggling, be able to get, get him some help. Um, so really kind of all the things we're talking about around the uh, the macro version of, of Mushroom is going to go down there and, and, 
and show the world what this looks like through the lens of sports. So I love it. I think it's super powerful. You know, people just need to see it with their own eyes and understand it and hear people talk about it more, just like cannabis, right? Yeah. Just storytelling, storytelling, <laughs> sharing experience. And um, so it. doing that next week. Yeah. And there's, uh, you know, there's a couple of links uh, there directed to wake to see, more, to see more about that too. That's awesome, brother. Yeah. I, we, we just launched a mental health test. We just found a patent on that. So uh, we'll be able to try to see if we can guide people to a more personalized experience with psychotropics as well. It's called NeuroDNA. So. We should uh, we should talk about that offline because uh, you know one of Wake's missions is the precision medicine. It's very similar to what you're doing. It's uh, they've partnered up with the Lieber Institute, uh, which mm-hmm. is associated with Johns Hopkins. It has the largest database of genetically profiled brains. So you know we're again lo- looking at genetics and 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 seeing what works best for that individual. And some people really shouldn't be using psilocybin at all, yep. but you know, if they're, yep. they're, if they're bipolar or schizo or whatever, they can land up yep. figuring out along the way. So uh, we should definitely talk. There might be some overlap. A hundred percent, brother. I got you, man. I, and it's been too long. I know, right? Imp- I, I know COVID, but uh, hopefully yeah. we'll, uh, I got to make a trek to Cali, man. For sure, man. Let's hang out. Yeah. I, I'm not, I'm not coming to Philly until uh, like, you know, maybe closer to spring, late spring. I think that's fine. Okay. So well, let's connect and, uh, and make it happen. Sure. Hey, thanks a lot, man. I really, really appreciate you doing this. Uh, it's great seeing you, man. Thanks for listening to today's show. To check out more great cannabis podcasts, go to podconnects.com. Here's a preview of one of our other shows. Season 1 of Dope History is now available at DopeHistory.com. Dope History weaves you through the lives of those who have been touched by cannabis or have had an influence on the events that shaped our laws or relationships with this plant. You'll hear tales from Frenchie Cannoli, Keith Strop, Eddie Lepp, Tom Alexander, Ed Rosenthal, Wolf Seagull, Jorge Cervantes, and Tommy Chong. Available now at DopeHistory.com.